Hi, good morning, everyone, and welcome. This is Seek Sustainable Japan, and I'm JJ Walsh here in Hiroshima, Japan. And today I have the pleasure of talking with author Hannah Lewis, who wrote an incredible book called Mini Forest Revolution using the Akira Miyawaki. A method to rewild areas around the world.、Uh, there's many connections to Japan, but of course, many connections all over the world.、Uh, these are issues that help our communities as well as help our environment. So, thank you so much for joining today, Hannah. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And I mentioned just before we went live that、uh, one of the parts of your book talks about Akira. Uh, Miyawaki, who is originally he studied in Hiroshima, Hiroshima University, and there's a section about him hugging one of the survivor trees that he felt particularly、uh, connected with. And I am gonna go and hug that tree after our talk today because I am a longtime fan of the survivor trees as such an amazing.、Um, Part of the Hiroshima story, it gave Hiroshima people hope、um, that there was hope after the city was destroyed with the nuclear bombing.、Um, but also, there are organizations that save seeds from those trees and send them to war-torn nations around the world in hopes that they can also have. That hopeful future.、Um, so I think Hiroshima. We have a lot of great connections with trees and hope, and community building. And I really feel like your book has a lot of those themes as very central. Yeah.、Um, how I, did you? Yeah. How did you? How did you kind of get started in writing the book? Because it's quite a recent process, right? You. Yeah. Doing a lot of the research last year, it sounds like. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, it was only published、um, just a few weeks ago in in June. So,、um, well, I was I was living in France,、um, and I was working for an organization in the U.S. called Biodiversity for a Livable Climate. So I was thinking a lot、um, all the time about the importance of healthy ecosystems for regulating. Water cycles and carbon cycles and nutrient cycles, and for lowering temperatures.、Um, and、uh, but I was reading and writing about this, and I I was feeling like I wanted to make a tangible difference on the land somewhere. So、um, when a story about the Miyawaki method that was being practiced by a couple in、um, not too far from where I was living in France passed. Across my screen,、um, it it sort of、uh, hit the right button. So, I reached out to them and、uh, learned about it, and it sort of just snowballed from there. That's wonderful. And like yesterday,、um, I talked with、uh, another author, Winifred Bird, who wrote a book about eating wild foods in Japan and the history and the culture of foraging for foods. And of course, a lot of it is connected to forestry as well. And、uh, although she's writing about plants and the wild foods that you can forage, her book is all about community and all about people. And I really felt this with reading your book as well.、Uh, it's about 
planting forests, but it's it's more about building communities. Yeah, um, yeah. So that was that was definitely part of Miyawaki's philosophy and vision from from what I gathered from everything that he wrote and said about his work. Um, he he understood that that people people need ecosystems, people need nature, people need trees that, you know, the base of the ecosystem is not us, it's plants, you know, plants are, are feeding the higher levels of the food chain. And so we depend, you know, we depend on nature in so many different ways. And so we, we owe it to, to ourselves, to each other, and um, to the rest of the living world to try to be a part of fixing what has been broken um, through just various tangents and civilization. Um, so he, um, yeah, so he was, he was, he was very people focused and community focused and, um, and the planting method lends itself to community participation because um, for one thing, because the plants are small when you plant them. So if you see a you know a city park department planting a tree, you'll see often a big hole and a big tree and a machine putting it in. Uh, you may see something like that, but with with the method that he developed, we're planting just you know little saplings that are um, a foot or two high, and to me they almost look like a a small yeah. There's a good picture as, you know, almost like the size of a large, uh, tomato, tomato transplant. So you can dig a hole big enough with one hand and you can carry it and put it in. So, and then there's lots of them, you know, he, we're planting densely at three plants per square meter. So it takes a lot of hands to do it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it just, it works really well in a community setting and, one thing too that he emphasized was um, like always bringing people together for these large planting events um, and also uh, doing a naming ceremony of the trees. So he would, um, you know, somebody from, from the group would, would hold up a tree, say the name of the tree and everybody would repeat the name. And that was, that was kind of a way to just kick things off for the day, but also to get people to be knowing the names of the plants um, and connecting with the plants in that way. Yeah, I, I love that part of your book. And I love that because uh, in so many other uh, examples from different parts of the world, there are examples where f the original virgin forests or the the original indigenous trees have been destroyed because the community has lost the connection with those trees they don't know the names of it they don't know the reason why this tree would be better than something else um mm -hmm. so there's there's parts of your book where you talk about the need to get kids involved so that kids who might be growing up without this natural connection uh, can start to understand um, the need uh, and the value for the connection. Otherwise, it's very easy for them to just demolish it and uh, mm -hmm. in progress, build some new buildings, which we see happening mm -hmm. all over the world, right? Right. Yeah, so it's it, it, was, it was fun. So as part of the book, I also um, 
proposed a, a mini forest project in the town where I was living and that was approved and we planted it. And so I went through the process of, of implementing this method. And um, what, what I enjoyed about it is, you know, like you were saying, learning the names of the trees, but not only that, also learning about the biome that I'm a part of, that I'm living in. And even if <laughs> most of the, you know, original members of that biome are not present because, you know, we've got palm trees or, you know, palm trees in France or, you know, some other species that are decorative that we've grown to appreciate over time because of how they look and et cetera. Um, those, you know, the seeds, the seeds are still present and there may be trees here and here and there. And so, um, and so just learning, you know, that this, for instance, in in the part of Brittany where I was living, uh, that's been dedicated to agriculture for thousands of years. And so, but pretty much all of Europe um, would would be forest climatically. And so it's it's hard for people to even imagine that because it has not been that thick forest that it that it had been once and could be for such a long time. So to learn to learn what biome you're a part of, you know what city you live in, but you don't necessarily know what the biome is that the ecosystem is that that city um, is a part of. So, yeah, and that that's really incredible. Like you have this one section. I think you're in in Paris talking to one of the the French experts or organizers of the project, and he's talking about people talk about eco diversity, biodiversity all the time without really understanding what it means. It's right, more right. complex than you realize. And I loved all of the ways that these organizers of projects around the world were trying to figure out what were the native trees here? Like looking at uh, old poems, looking at old paintings to figure out what were the original trees here? Because uh, in your book, even in Japan, around temples and shrines, which Miyawaki often talked about uh, being preserved, you do have a lot of areas where uh, trees were put in just decorative, like all over the world, right? Yeah. Just to look nice or just fruit trees. Uh, so this example from your book in Rinoji Temple in Sendai, in the Tohoku area, uh, they had planted uh, the same kind of tree, the cedar trees, and it looks really pretty. But then they replanted because they moved it. And when they did the Miyawaki method of the more native style mixed uh, trees there, oh my gosh, it's so much more beautiful. And, mm. you know, you can appreciate the resilience of a more... Mm -hmm. A diverse forest like that instead of just all one kind of tree, right? I'm yeah, what I, what I like about this set of pictures is that, you know, the, the top one is so familiar to us. We see that all over the world along streets, et cetera, uh, walkways like that. Um, but the, the one on the bottom is familiar, but what it makes me think of is something that grew naturally without ever having been planted. It, you know, um, so it's familiar, but not in the sense of having been planted. So um, that's that's a really cool aspect of this method is that we are trying to create what would be growing somewhere if it hadn't been cleared for development. 
And in fact, what grows up is something that looks, you know, really, really natural. So, um, so it's, yeah. yeah. Amazing. And you were talking about your project. I think these are pictures from the, the book, uh, the image on the front cover of the book. This was the project that you were a part of, right? No, my organization oh. that I work for um, did this last September um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, but I was, I was working for them remotely living in France. So ah, okay. I did yeah. was there actually, yeah. It looks like a great project. And uh, this this is on the front cover of the book though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that is the one, yeah. I, I heard you say in, in your interview with them. So I was watching that one. Um, there are so many parts of the book that I, I wanna go into bit by bit, kind of chapter by chapter. Um, I just wanna tell the audience, anyone who hasn't read this wonderful book yet, it is very easy to read. And I think that's a credit to you, Hannah, and how you focus on the communities and the people in the stories. Mm -hmm. It's not like a technical, how to, how to plant forest uh, guidebook. It is, it is very, it's a very interesting uh, read because I think we connect to people more mm -hmm. in that way and their stories. Well, it's, um, it, yeah. It, if ahead. I can just add to that, it's, it's a story about a technique developed in, in Japan that, um, you know, Miyawaki worked with companies all over Japan and really, really practiced, I think, you know, several thousand sites in Japan. And, uh, and, then, and then the story is, is of the spread of that knowledge around the globe. And so, you know, the overseas company, Japanese companies that started it, and that's where it got noticed by um, Shubendu Sharma in India, who then got really excited about it, learned about it, started a company planting forests, and then gave a TED Talk. That TED Talk went viral, and that's how it caught on in Europe. So that's what's pretty fun about this about this story is is sort of the the journey of knowledge and of an idea and a practice around the globe that originated in Japan yeah. in the seventies, really. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so going back to Akira Miyawaki's book, uh, L. Dean Box uh, did the translation, uh, the philosophy be behind restoring Earth's balance with native trees. Um, according to Wikipedia, he uh, was a part of 10,000 sites around Japan and uh, more many more thousands of projects around the world. Uh, so he was really active in his lifetime. He also created a seed bank of more than 10 million seeds. It was incredible mm. to read that. And then in your book, um, one of the things that really stood out to me is how he was very clear with the businesses that he worked with because he was hired mm -hmm. by some big industrial businesses in Japan he always made sure to get the top of the company involved. Yeah. And I, I find that really important uh, in yeah. terms of sustainability. If the right. top person is not into it, it's not gonna last, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he was so smart and he told the top, I think it was Nippon Steel, he said, if we plant these amazing trees and they start to die because of pollution, you have to promise to stop it right away. Right, and they right. came back and they said, okay, we promise. <laughs> and, and I mean, yeah. that's amazing, right? Yeah. 
yeah that was yeah that's that was so cool he was he was just he made it clear and and i think he he wrote he wrote a lot in um um blue planet story which was it's a good place but he yeah he made it clear that he just he was not interested in kind of playing along on a superficial greening attempt. That was just, it, it, it had no interest to him at all. So he wasn't going to waste his time on people who were insincere and, and not actually caring about rebuilding ecosystems. Um, so it, that was, that was pretty neat. And I think it, um, yeah, I think it, it was a huge part of his success. Definitely. And then connecting that um, to the work that other people have done in the Tohoku area uh, after mm -hmm. the disaster, uh, including, I think Miyawaki was involved with that a little bit, mm -hmm. but um, talking about how they did the Miyawaki method in some areas and then other areas, uh, the government has put in big concrete walls mm -hmm. and then in other areas, uh, quick quick growth trees have been put in. And yeah. I think the comment from your book was, it'll be really interesting to see mm -hmm. which method is the most resilient. And I think anybody who reads your book knows which method is going to be the most resilient. Um, it's just incredible. Yeah, it's um, the, the pine trees are, I think a good example um, that you can see this pattern in many places of people really, um, the, the pine trees are something people have been used to seeing for a few centuries because they've been planted there. Um, and so they're sort of emblematic of the area. Uh, and, um, and people like that, you know? So there's, there's certain things that we like seeing and, and, and it, and it feels like part of our landscape and part of all, our culture, and 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 we we don't want to see something different necessarily. So that was a that was kind of um, an obstacle there in in transitioning to a, a Miyawaki method seawall that could that could protect against future tsunamis. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you do see that a lot. Um, you see the big pine trees put in as the barrier, the natural barrier. And you're glad it's a natural barrier. But like is pointed out in your book, these are mostly alpine trees. These are not coastal trees. They don't belong there. Um, right. So they're not going to be as resilient as if we can figure out uh, what trees naturally belong and what trees actually are the most resilient in this area. So uh, doing that research really makes a big difference. Uh, let's talk about the Indian uh, case studies in Rajasthan. Uh, just amazing uh, to read that story. Um, the organizer talking about uh, if you're growing trees in the desert, this is from your book, if you're growing trees in the desert, um, you first have to either create a water source or as you're planting trees, you have to transport the water quite a lot. So yeah. his first strategy was to create a well mm -hmm. and then to create um, the forest using the Miyawaki method. And then it started retaining 
the water itself. It's just, I visited Rajasthan uh, mm. many years ago and to think of growing forests in the desert, you know, this is something that can really inspire anyone, yeah. any area around the world, right? Right. Yeah, well, and I think um, there are a couple key things about that project. One is that, um, so yeah, it was a semi-arid area. Um, and so there there was a lot of native vegetation and, and, and what he had observed was that the the water cycle so the you know normally the vegetation would have would have um allowed the water to absorb into the soil and then it would sort of hold it there with shade and keep it a bit cool um and once once the vegetation was gone due to well all the various reasons why vegetation disappear um from human development um then the, the then sort of the cycle was broken but when but so you you were mentioning the pictures but so he had in the very close nearby town there were there were pictures of um a time i think it was only a few hundred years ago where women were hugging all of these trees in an area so there was a picture there of the of the trees and the women hugging them and then and then soldiers so the king wanted those trees to be cut to to build a palace um and the and the women sacrificed themselves because they wanted to keep the trees but anyway that you know that that suggests that there were trees there in that area and that um and that there were plenty of them and also what kinds there were so he also in addition to pictures like that, he also looked at local poetry of people that had been writing about vegetation and plants and nature, you know, over several decades. Um, and so these were a lot of clues he put together. And and then kind of just doing on the ground observation, he was seeing that the in that semi-arid area, the vegetation grow the trees grow differently than they do in the humid areas so in the humid areas of india you have a really a dense forest um and in this area he he said that the trees and shrubs and vines would grow in clusters so there wasn't yeah there wasn't sort of this dense mass of forest that you would find in other areas so that's what he tried to recreate so he would plant um you know, clusters of shrubs, vines, and, uh, you know, a tree or two in circles, and then they were spaced apart. So that was really to, to replicate what he was observing. So another key thing was that he, he, he was doing this project um, near two rivers. So he was in a riparian area. So he, so in those areas, you do have more, um, more woody vegetation to begin with. Um, and also he was able to um, make use of the monsoon season by digging digging a, a large pond so that the river water during the monsoon would fill up the pond. And then over time, the, that water would seep into the ground uh, and, and seep into the place where the, the, the trees were that he was planting. So that was a way to kind of, yeah, restart the, the water cycles, but it was, Definitely, a, you know, because the Milwaukee method, I think, has mainly been used in temperate forest areas and tropical forest areas. And so doing it in a semi-arid environment like that or in a Mediterranean area, that's, um, 
that kind of takes a little bit of exploration to see to see what it looks like see how it works in those kinds of environments. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. so exciting. Um, I love that example. Um, one other example that really stood out was the Bulu, the Bulu water catchment area before planting and here 19 months after. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so this, amazing. and this is in a very different environment. It's in a tropical rainforest area of Cameroon and so in here they do get lots of rain there's no shortage of water but um but even so they were having groundwater problems because because so much of the land had been cleared for development so uh the the water was just washing off you know bare surfaces and traveling traveling away from the area and not seeping into the groundwater so um their goal there was to to, to replant the forest that had been there that does grow really quickly because the conditions are ideal for it. Um, and then that lowers the temperature around the stream and gives the water a chance to percolate down into the, into the ground rather than just rushing right off. So yeah, that's a, that picture is, is a great one that it was such a short time between bare yeah. ground and really a beautiful lush area. And that is such a, a typical issue of the many urban areas, right? Because you have so much uh, land covered in concrete. Yeah. Uh, you have a similar runoff problem where nothing is soaking in because there is no uh, trees or dirt or anything, right? Yeah. Uh, so that yeah. was a similar problem in that area, was it? Yeah, exactly. Even though they had plenty of rain. So imagine in a place where it's really dry. I think of, so one of the stories in the book is also about Beirut, where um, they the, the river there um, runs through Beirut, but in the 1960s, it was paved. And the idea was to mitigate the effects of, well, mitigate flooding for the floodplains area, because normally it's natural for for water in a river to overflow the banks and flood the area at certain times of year but once that was developed um with urban infrastructure then um that that was no longer feasible and so they paved it and then that got the water out to sea as quickly as possible the same the same issue is in la which is having a long drought and having um like really significant water issues these days um, and so it's it's sad to think that when it does rain, all of that precious water gets channeled, uh, you know, ultimately into a concrete alley that just goes right out to sea. And it's it's so you know the idea of having vegetation um, in a city like they did in in that place in Cameroon, but in every city is is that you know you slow the water down. You give it a, you you create spongy soil. You give it a play a time and a way to percol percolate down and refill the groundwater supply. So that's really key. When it rains, you need to keep it there. <laughs> yeah, and that we uh, see that so much in areas, even urban areas, where they add even small parks and gardens along the way. Uh, you see a cooling effect, like you talk about in the book. Um, you also see more rain catchment naturally happening, uh, less flooding 
also when it's drier, you, you somehow retain the water better. There's just so many knock on positive effects to doing it. It's just fabulous. Yeah. Um, let's just step back a little bit and go to this diagram. Um, I love this one from your book about how the Miyawaki method works in a shorter time than, yeah. than usual. Can you walk us through this a little bit? Sure. So the the diagram on the top is uh, it's a, it's a 100 to 200 year timeline and it's 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 showing ecological succession. So most of us have seen ecological succession in various stages. Um, and so when you have bare ground, it gets covered with little small weeds that grow fast, die quickly, make lots of seeds, add their organic matter to the ground, you know, cool the cool the ground a tiny bit and just ever so slightly improve the conditions. And so then you get larger plants that are longer living. Um, and this and this continues through time until eventually you get pioneer trees that are faster growing trees like birches or poplars or pines that um, that grow that that grow pretty quickly, don't live they they live a long time but not as long as some of the other trees um and they're and they also need sun sunlight to grow so then um to once you're getting towards the very end of this process of ecological succession you get um you get shade tolerance you've got you've got now you've got some shade with those pioneer trees and you and now you have see uh climax trees that are germinating in that shade and growing up and eventually they take over the canopy and they're and they're shade tolerant whereas all of the other um plants before that needed a lot of sun um and so then you get kind of a stable community that um you know there the the trees will grow up create a big canopy and then their seeds will will fall and those seedlings will be able to germinate and live in the shade until there's an opening in the canopy and so you're you're repeating that cycle uh, with a particular community of, of trees. So that's the idea is, is that that's a climax community. So what Miyawaki did was he said, okay, let's try to create that stable climax community. Um, and we know we kind of have an idea of, you know, the theory, how it happens. And so let's just do it directly. But one thing that's important to know is that all of those earlier successional species, they're improving the soil conditions along the way. Like I said, adding organic material, cooling, holding moisture. And so we can't just plant those climax species into degraded bare ground. We need to, um, we need to decompact the ground if it's compacted. We need to add back the topsoil and the organic material. So that's what the Milwaukee method does is um, they it's identify that climax forest community, improve the soil with de by decompacting it, adding organic material and then planting densely and planting multiple species. Um, so and planting not only not only the, the tall canopy trees, but also the mid level trees and the shrubs. So you're creating the layers of the natural forest um you plant them densely and then in my mind it it's 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 as if you're creating a clearing in a forest you know you're creating those ideal conditions because you've got that nice spongy forest floor with topsoil and organic material and it's loose 
Um, and then you're putting those climax species that would have fallen right there and germinated right there um, with a mixture of a mixture of species. And then voila, you have uh, an opening in the canopy. And then all of those little guys that have been waiting in the shade, they just cruise right up to the sun. And that, so they do grow really fast because they're, they're racing to get up the, to the sun. Um, and, and then uh, another aspect of the Miyawaki method is mulching. So once you have in a, in a forest floor, you would have fallen leaves that protect the soil um, and nourish it. But here we don't yet. So we put a nice thick layer of draw of dry straw mulch and that protects the soil until you get a little canopy with those, with those trees, the saplings that you've planted after two or three years. Yeah, that's great. And it's, it's so exciting that it can, it can happen in such a short time. Of course, uh, this is something you mentioned in the book. Of course, it's, it's more important to preserve any native forest that you have diverse forests um, first and foremost. Um, but if you have to recreate and uh, regenerate new forests, uh, this is a good method to use, right? Yeah, it's a it's a both and situation. There's so much urgency in this moment right now. We need to protect and expand ecosystems. So yeah, this is a good way to do it because it's a way that where people can participate at the individual and community level and don't necessarily have to wait for a big project to, to be developed at you know a higher a higher level of agency. So. Yeah. One of the uh, really impressive uh, stories, there's so, all the stories are so impressive, um, but one of the ones that stood out to me as well was along the Great Wall um, mm -hmm. that he did the Miyawaki method planting along the Great Wall. They had already tried uh, with more ornamental trees and it didn't work. Um, mm -hmm. So their project was to find out what were more indigenous trees. It turns mm -hmm. out it was a Mongolian pine or, and other uh, Chinese oak. trees. Mongolian right? oak, yeah. Mongolian oak, yeah. So that yeah. was an incredible project too. And it looks yeah. like uh, it's a bit of trial and error, uh, yeah. needed more mulching, a kind of an ongoing observation. Um, is this pretty typical of most projects? You have to keep an eye on it and see how things are going? Um, that, I would say that project was a bit of an outlier in the sense that the conditions were really challenging um, because they didn't have ready access to compost or mulch or water. And that's a pretty, those are pretty important elements of a Miwaki method. So I would say most of the projects are work, work, you know, the, the recipe works and um, you have, the main thing is that you have to pay attention to the steps. You know, you can't cut corners or, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, you have, to, you have to really go for it and, and follow, follow the method as faithfully as possible. But, but in, you know, according, according to Milwaukee and everybody I've talked to, um, and any, the, the method really works and, and the proof is in the pudding, those, those forests that have grown and they've been stable. The, so, um, yeah, but the first three years is critical um, for, for any planting because the, the, 
the, the small plants are still digging their roots down. And so if you, you know, if, if, if it gets too dry, if you're not paying attention to watering, if, if the weeds overtake it, then you'll have problems. But as long as you take care of it over the first three years, then, um, then it's self-sustaining. It's become an ecosystem in onto itself and um, it, it can carry things forward from there. So. Uh, let's talk about the urban oasis, because I think um, your stories in the book about uh, Paris and other urban areas that are able to apply this method uh, in one of the um, writs about the book before I even read it, talking about you can transform a small car park into a forest. Uh, that's part of the charm of the mm -hmm. Miyawaki method, right? Yeah, I, I think that's why it's popular in cities um, because because of the way it works well for community participation and because of the variability of surface. I think one thing to say about the surface, though, uh, the the size, um, is that it's important to have like a forest. One thing about a forest is that you have a microclimate inside. And the microclimate is created by the fact that you've got you've got the canopy on top. That's like a roof. It's 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 shading out um, the direct sunlight. And then on the sides you have a mantle. Those are kind of like the exterior walls. And so they're blocking they're blocking sunlight um, also from going directly into the forest. And they're it's blocking wind. It's it's blocking dry and hot air. So inside it's a bit moister and cooler and that's a really important aspect of a forest and and forest health and so if you make it if you make a one of these forests too small then you will have light penetrating into the sides on all sides and uh, you won't really have it much of an interior um, space or microclimate and so um so i think i think the tennis court size is is kind of like what people have largely settled on, which, you know, you, you still have a bit of an interior space that that the sunlight isn't streaming right through the whole forest. Um, on, but on the other hand, if you do do it in the smaller in the smaller spaces, you're still you're still creating um, uh, you're still cr creating a lot of the beneficial aspects of plants growing together and 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 sort of sheltering each other to a certain extent and and creating a more interesting habitat for wildlife so um i think you know i'll miyawaki i think he often planted in long strips um because that that worked well as sort of you know a perimeter around a property um yeah so that's those are good pictures but that's pretty wide i think you know like four or five yards slash meters wide is is um, a good width and then it can just go on the length can go on but you can you can plant them in pretty small spaces yeah i i'm showing uh some of his projects um that i found online uh some from your book like this one in yokohama national university forest yeah. uh, which he helped plant and then yeah. uh this one from nippon.com uh, talking mm -hmm. about some of the Miyawaki method on in strips just outside urban areas. Uh, and it's very exciting to see that develop 
into green green lanes that yeah. uh, have so much benefit, right? Yeah, it's a it's a nice way to to block traffic, a gross, polluted, trafficy area from a neighborhood is a nice thick strip of forest in between that's dense. Yeah, wasn't that that was interesting? Um, like they were t you were talking about uh, trying to get a highway uh, permission mm -hmm. to go through a, a kind of a rural area, and one of the reasons they were able to pass the plan was they said we're gonna make this Miyawaki method forest next to the busiest part where all the cars are passing and right. that's gonna not only make it nicer as a buffer but also mm -hmm. absorb some of the noise right, um, right. that was interesting because you really yeah. see that next to highways right yeah you see those kind of tall walls that are put up to, to serve kind of a similar purpose but imagine living next to a really beautiful thick forest as opposed to a wall if you have to be near a highway yeah absolutely yeah. and i noticed it in my own neighborhood like we live mm -hmm. just over a mountain a little mountain from mm -hmm. hiroshima station and it's a very busy area but we have mm -hmm. that natural forest buffer so we don't mm -hmm. hear it it's very yeah. quiet it's beautiful yeah yeah, yeah. That's great um, one other thing I thought was really interesting about the urban oasis uh, examples in Paris, in the Netherlands, um, you have this collaboration between good policy and community development and the, uh, the expertise about uh, diverse forests. So you have those three people, planet, profit, ESGs, government working together with good policy and rules together with getting these developments protected. What was mm -hmm. it? You mentioned biodiversity is given honorary citizenship in Paris since mm -hmm. 2016. I mean, but mm -hmm. we need to give nature yeah. Yeah. This kind of protection too, right? Right, right. What I, what I thought was cool in reading about Paris's policy is that they, you know, they hosted the climate summit in 2015, and the mayor really went out of her way to to encourage other mayors to do city level climate mitigation um, work. Um, so, so I think that and and not only that but other other um other events and realizations sort of infused that importance of nature into into city planning um and and at the same time paris was having these heat waves is is having these heat waves and um even even deadly ones where where people um are are overheating um and so, so, you know, it was really urgent to address that issue of the thermal comfort of the city. And so, um, you know, that got, got the city thinking about cooling roots and cooling islands so that no matter where you are in the city, you can walk um, in a shaded area and you won't be too far from something like a public church, which has a cooler temperature inside or a public library or or a park, um, uh, a green area that's open to the public. So, so, but in thinking about that, um, you know, it also made sense to, and then thinking about the importance of biodiversity, they, they're actually overlapping. So the, so the, 
corridors that people need for cooling are the same as the corridors or, or, or very much overlapping as many of the corridors for wildlife in the area. So, um, yeah, that, I mean, it just somehow is a little bit poetic to me that they're sort of two separate issues, but in fact, it's the same issue, you know, that, that people and, and wildlife both need help <laughs> surviving um, in, in this era of climate change. So, yeah. And that, that heat island effect is no joke, right? Like there are, there are people this month, they've had the highest number of cases of heat stroke this month of any year. Uh, this is something that's going to get worse and worse every year. We're going to have the worst every year, every year because of climate change, right? Yeah. 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 So we need these kind of, kind of organizational top-down changes as well as the mm -hmm. grassroots community level changes as well as uh, customers right. making better choices as well as companies. Right, we need, companies we need all well hands on deck. Up. Yeah, we need yeah. everybody from all sides to yeah. have the kind of the same vision. And like you said, overlap. Overlap mm -hmm. is the key, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, there's so many parts of the book that really stood out to me in, in terms of, uh, you know, the quotes from the book. Do you mind if I show some and then we can talk about it? Yeah, um, please. So the biodiversity, I think this was in France. Uh, I mentioned it before. So he said biodiversity is something that people struggle to understand uh, because biodiversity is not only among species, there is also genetic but diversity within species. I think you mentioned this before. Um, the earth, neither plants nor animals, but microbes. So how do people understand this level of biodiversity? Are there kits that mm. they can do soil samples? Do they need to collaborate with scientists? Mm. What would you suggest to understand on this microbial level? Um, I would, the soil is a good place to start because in a teaspoon of healthy soil, there's, I don't know, I don't remember the number, but it's an unbelievable number of microorganisms just in that tiny amount. And they, they do such important things. Um, the, the fungi help the, help the trees access nutrients in the soil and water. And in exchange, the, the, the plants give them carbon, um, carbon compounds. And so, and then the, the fungi also hold the soil in, in a structure. So you do create that, that sponge-like structure to allow water to go down and infiltrate and be held in the soil and available to plants. Um, and um, and in, in, our, in our bodies too, um, I think, you know, some, something that is commonly more and more known these days is that there are more um, microorganism cells in our bodies than there are human cell, our own cells from our human, um, with our human DNA. Um, and so, you know, we, there's a, that's like the holobiome idea where we have, we have a lot of microorganisms in our gut that control our moods and obviously our digestion, our, our health, um, our immune defense. So, 
those those are really really interesting things to start paying attention to the um and one thing that mark andre salas says in that that part of the book that you mentioned is that um even if we're not really aware of these invisible parts of our ecosystems the microorganisms um we we can save them by saving the animals and the plants that we do see since those those microorganisms are associated with particular species we have the ones that live in our guts and our bodies the white rhinoceros has its own um assemblage of different microorganisms that are adapted to living in and on that that particular species um so yeah so so that's that's a way we can kind of visualize if we think about the fact that microorganisms are helping all of our bodies work all so many different species then we know that preserving those species also preserves those microorganisms yeah this really i don't know if it's related or not but this reminded me of um my passion for compost and mm. i wonder if and i didn't read about composting uh, in the book, maybe I missed it, but um, is, could this be a part of regenerating the soil, especially in rural areas where the soil is so degraded and so dried out, uh, to have composting systems as part of community development, getting the soil better, oh, yeah. and then starting these mini forests? Would that make sense? And then maybe even adding to it after the forest is getting going? um adding to it after the force is getting going isn't necessarily um necessary but um but i do think that yeah i mean like think of think of all of the nutrients that we throw away into plastic bags that end up in a landfill uselessly when i i share your passion for composting <laughs> i love i love composting because you're you're making use of something that um, would otherwise fill the landfill, and it's 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 like that rain falling in the rainy season in California. It's so precious these nutrients because just like the water is so precious, and we need to hold it and keep it and make use of it because the land needs it. Um, and so I think yeah, I think a, a few kind of like. Com composting systems um, so that you're creating the material that you need to 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 get a forest started properly, um, and um, and then also uh, also sapling nurseries. So um, somebody was telling me that you know there's a plan in Minnesota where I live now to to reforest a million acres. And one big question is where will all of, where will all of those saplings come from? So this this the there's a huge need for I think um, native native plant saplings um, for reforestation that's going to happen, and that could happen at the community scale too. And Milwaukee um, did that. So like we talked about the Great Wall the Great Wall project. Um, and they collected once they figured out that Mongolian oak species that they wanted to plant, and they found a few specimens growing on the landscape. They collected um, acorns there, and you know, kids can do this. School classes can do this. The kids can can plant those, um, and then um, so yeah, so that's that's another pretty cool 
community aspect is starting the seedlings and doing the composting to get the materials ready for a planting project. That's so cool. Very exciting. Um, one of the things that that so many parts of this book really connected in my mind is with Fukuoka Sensei's uh, ideas, One Straw Revolution. And it's very different. He had a very different approach. Um, but um, his idea of just throwing seeds out and seeing what sticks, what works there, um, mm -hmm. is kind of similar to Miyawaki's yeah. method, right? Yeah. That, yeah. that once you see which plants are more resilient in a certain right. area, that those are the ones that you, you try yeah. to support. Yeah, I mean, it's similar in in both senses. You're observing what's happening in nature and you're and you're trying to work with nature and follow follow the examples that you're you're seeing on the land itself. Yeah. Uh, we've got two comments so far. LinkedIn says great graphics. Wonderful. Yeah. Fantastic graphics in the book. Really enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. uh, Kyle says I just started composting in 2020 late to the game, but on board now. Good for you, Kyle. Um, I'm a huge fan of composting. There's only one place in Japan that does mandatory composting. Uh, it's the Zero Waste Town of Kamikatsu. And uh, they saw an immediate 30% drop in all their waste. And mm. I came home and I saw an immediate 30% drop in all mm. our family waste. Yeah. And I heard the same thing in San Francisco, a city of yeah. 1 million. Yeah. They see 30% drop in waste when they started mm -hmm. mandatory composting. So mm -hmm. there's a, a lot of reasons to do it. Uh, reduce yeah. fossil fuels in the whole waste management system. Um, right. Create better soil, regenerative. So many reasons, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, Hannah, is there anything we haven't touched on in the book that you'd like to talk about in the last few minutes? Or any call to action? How do people get started? Um. Well, I think um, reading the book, reading reading as much as you can um, about the method, and and I think um, forming a team in in your local community, find the other people who, with kind of a fire in their belly, to heal the land, and um, that may be even somebody in the city council. It may be um, your neighbor. It may be somebody at the university, but. Um, Form a team and um, and and start figuring out how it works and be sure that you have you know that you're really paying attention to the local ecology or that you have somebody on board who who can help with that um, and yeah I think it I think it is really important to try to follow the steps as closely as possible um, I think a lot. I think a lot of times people get the general idea and then just say, "Okay, well, dense native, let's do it." But, but I think if you're doing the Milwaukee method, it's important to to think about you know the fact that you're planting a, a climax forest and that you know you're you're really taking care of the soil so that it's getting a good start and um, and I think. Uh, I think finding a site is another really exciting part of the process because, you know, you want one thing that's cool about what the Netherlands did is they they had the neighborhoods and the schools that were interested actually apply to work, you know, to work with the organization to plant a forest. So it was the it was a very local initiative um, site selection process. Um, 
and and each one is paired with a school so the, there's an immediate community around it that's invested in it um, that is committed to to learning it understanding it taking care of it um, and watching and, and enjoying it watching it grow I so. love that part of the book you say uh, when they first put out the call why should it be in your neighborhood why should we grow this forest in your hood um, yeah. they said so many beautiful stories yeah exactly coming out, right yeah. and how yeah. humans have all these beautiful memories connected to right. trees and forests which we've right. forgotten right 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 yeah yeah gorgeous um, I love this part of the book, too, about uh, just keep walking. Momentum grows. When we first started creating village forests, uh, woods in harmony with local ecological conditions, our voice was like a faint cry in the wilderness, Miyawaki and Box wrote. Um, but the more you keep talking about it and keep trying to rally people who might be interested, uh, you mm -hmm. can grow your momentum is what you were talking about in the book. I think that's yeah. a, a great. Yeah. Start. And it's, it's a way to start a conversation, you know, um, that people don't, don't necessarily want to start a conversation about <laughs> all the horrors of climate change. It's, it's a hard, that's a hard conversation to have. But if you, if you bring up, you know, this idea of something that we can do, then that begs the question, well, why in the world do we need to plant a forest in our neighborhood? And then you can start talking about all the benefits and all of the all of the risks that are kind of out there that that this that this type of project can help avert. So um, I think there's some there's some like technical or legal issues as well in Japan. Um, I often see areas where they have abandoned houses and it's kind of going back to nature. And I think, oh, this would be a perfect site to even if you leave some of the structure to put in like a more Miyawaki forest, you know, and see if it grows in this area and what an asset to the community it would become. Um, and then there's other like abandoned farmland. But in mm -hmm. Japan, as I imagine around the world, there are certain rules about how you can reuse farmland. So I don't know if you can change farmland into a forest. I don't know if you can change a residential into a forest. Right. Um, have you come across like those kind of legal issues as people are thinking about? I haven't, I haven't run into them exactly. I think um, in my town, what people were concerned about was just forests growing too close to urban infrastructure and, you know, underground pipes and, and wires and things like that. Um, so, yeah, that's that's definitely something to think about. Um, and in, in terms of zoning, I don't know, I think I think. Um, like in terms of farms, what what I kind of imagine, like what Milwaukee often did was just do these long strips like we are looking at pictures of. And I think that there's like really practical purposes on a par farm. So the importance of protecting waterways from the nutrient runoff from farms. So you plant along a waterway um, and that protects the water and improves the wildlife habitat as a, as a windbreak around a farmstead area is a really interesting thought. Um, or, or just as like sort of an island of, um, of pollinator habitat that will also help the farm. Um, 
So I think I think you know this this method really lends itself to these these sort of like spaces in between other activities um, that that can really bring a lot of benefits to everything around it. So, yeah. Definitely. There's a lot of areas outside of uh, designated housing or designated farmland we could work on first around the yeah. farm, for example. I yeah, love that right. idea. Right, um, right. Is there, how can people get in touch with you or find out more? How can they buy the book? Can you tell us? Yeah, um, I do have a website. It's my name, hannahlewis.org. Um, and I, and then for the, for the book, it's available online at most places, most websites that, that sell books. So, you know, the whole range, um, and also at the publisher's website, which is Chelsea Green. There, there are a few international, um, I think book depository and wordery ship internationally. Um, so for people listening in other outside of the U S that those might be options. Uh, comment from Kyle, regulations on environmental protection are enormous in the US as well. Uh, permits mm -hmm. are often required. Yeah, so these these are the these are the reasons we need policymakers involved too, right, Hannah? Right. Yeah. <laughs> to help yeah. smooth the way, make exactly. it easier for people to get it done, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Hannah. That was a great conversation, and I'm so excited about the book and all the ideas that have sparked. Um, inside me, I will definitely be talking about it with lots of other groups. Um, I definitely encourage everyone to get the book. There's lots of great stories from all over the world, including Japan, and uh, lots of inspiration there. So thank you so much, Hannah. Yeah, thank you. It was it was really fun talking to you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, well, of course, fantastic. I hope you get lots more into invitations so you can keep spreading the good word around the world. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for joining. Have a great weekend, and uh, see you next week. Thanks, Anna. Thank you. I dropped the armor, now I'm bolder.